Welcome to Disarming Leviathan, a podcast designed to equip you to missionally engage American Christian nationalists. Today, we have an interview with Dr. John Fia. Dr. Fia is professor of American history and the chair of the history department at Messiah University. He is the author or editor of six books, including the book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, published in 2018, as well as the book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? A Historical Introduction, published in 2011. Now, his essays and reviews have appeared in a variety of scholarly and popular venues. He frequently posts on his blog, The Way of Improvement Leads Home. And in this interview, we explore the frequently repeated claim that America was founded as a Christian nation. We explore different ways to engage that claim and discuss some of the revisionist history and falsehoods that are spread in American Christian nationalist circles by people like uh, David Barton. Now, I very much appreciate the work of Dr. Fia and believe that this interview, as well as his work, uh, will help you to engage American Christian nationalists in your life. Now, without further ado, here's the interview with Dr. John Fia. So, John, talk to us a little bit about the interplay between Christianity and the founders. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question. I think it's a lot more complicated than the way much of modern political discourse on both sides of the aisle make it out to be. You know, at, at one point, I think you have to come to grips with the fact that the personal religious beliefs of the founders really don't tell us a whole lot about the question of whether or not they were trying to found a Christian nation, you know, or not. I mean, you could have you could have people who were devout Orthodox Christians who might feel comfortable, say, in your church in Phoenix, you know, who who would have advocated for some type of a, you know, whether we call it separation of church and state or a or a or a secular nation or a nation that you know, does not privilege one form of religion over another. And then you could have, you know, others who are, uh, you know, not very religious at all, like Thomas Jefferson, or you could have a Unitarian like John Adams, you know, who do believe that religion can be good for, for the Republic. So, you know, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make. If you can somehow prove that John Adams or Thomas Jefferson or George Washington was a Christian, then you can use that to advance some kind of Christian nation or anti-Christian nation agenda in politics. So that's one way. I think that's a very unhelpful way of, of analyzing this. You know, I think the founding fathers, I think it's clear to a to a man, you know, and we are obviously talking about men here, right? Uh, to a man, the founding fathers would have upheld the belief that religion, as I just said, was was good for the republic in the sense that, you know, you have to remember these founders were not preachers. They were not theologians, right? So they were trying to build a republic. And at the heart of a republic is the idea that sometimes people must sacrifice for the greater good. The founders called this virtue, right? It was a political idea. You know, you have rights, of course, you have rights, but sometimes you have duties and responsibilities. And that's the only way. I mean, remember, these founders studied, uh, you know, some formally, some not formally, ancient republics. 
they understood that republics only work when people are at times, again, I emphasize this, at times willing to perhaps surrender an individual right for the greater good of the whole. If religion could help American citizens do that, I think there's a strong connection between kind of the more secular, they would have called it pagan view of republicanism that, you know, we need to sacrifice for the greater good. You know, if religion could help serve those ends, you know, religious people know how to sacrifice their interests for the greater good. At least that's the idea. They could make good Republican citizens. So, you know, that's an important piece of the puzzle. You know, I think also when you're talking about religion and the founding, you need to look at the founding documents. And, and there, it's really, really hard to make any kind of case, especially with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And I don't know, maybe you want to get into this, that the founding fathers were deliberately trying to create some kind of uniquely Christian nation. You know, my argument would be if they wanted to create such a nation, they would have been a lot more explicit about that in the in the yeah in the documents. Yeah, let's talk about that. One of the things that we often hear with American Christian nationalists is this rhetoric that the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution are divinely inspired documents. They'll speak of them with a level of reverence that perhaps they're speaking about Holy Scripture. Would the founders have revered these documents in that same way? Not at all. Um, you know, even the founders that would have upheld traditional evangelical beliefs, people like Samuel Adams or Roger Sherman or John Witherspoon, the only minister to sign the Declaration of Independence, or um, John Jay or Patrick Henry, all who were orthodox believing Christians, would have never have gone so far as to place a, a man-made document like the Declaration of Independence or the United States Constitution on the same level as as scripture. Uh, so I, I don't know of any founder, Christian or non-Christian, who would see these documents as somehow inspired by God or sacred in a kind of Christian sense of sacred texts. So even as you're saying that, uh, you know, I'm we hear frequently language like, well, obviously the founding documents uh, refer to God or rely on the Christian tradition. They use language like creator and providence. Would the founders have made that argument that that they're speaking explicitly about what we might call an evangelical version of their understanding of creator? Well, let's take the Declaration of Independence for, for an example here, because the word God or providence is never mentioned in the United States Constitution. And remember, these are two different documents. They were written 11 years apart, right? The Declaration of Independence makes kind of four references to some kind of higher being, right? You have uh, the idea of nature's God uh, in the in the preamble. You have a reference to a creator uh, in the preamble, endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And then in the end, you have a reference to a God as a judge, right? And, and then you have a reference to providence or the idea that, that God understood in the Christian tradition, providence meaning that God is in control of, like he orders the world according to his purposes. You know, all of these ideas, first of all, are ideas that would have been held by virtually everyone in the 18th century 
in the colonies, in the British world, the West, if you want to call it that, right? I mean, you would, you would be very hard-pressed, especially in the colonies, to find an atheist, for example. Uh, I've been challenging people for over 20 years, my students and others, right? Please find me a pure atheist in 18th century America. You will not find one. The closest you will get might be someone who was what we call a deist, someone who believed that God created the world and then let it run on its own natural laws, but doesn't interfere, right? Doesn't perform miracles, doesn't answer prayer, right? That's the deist God. These vague references, providence, judgment, creator, nature's God, uh, these things could have been understood as the Christian God, they could have also been understood by deists or people even in between deism and, and, and evangelical Christianity. Notice what's not in the Declaration of Independence. There is no reference to a God who revealed himself in the form of a human being and incarnated himself and died for the sins of the world, right? There is no reference to inspired biblical texts. There's no reference to uh, the resurrection. You know, none of these things were uniquely evangelical ways of understanding uh, the meaning of creator or God. You know, any deist would have believed in a creator. So it's really hard to tell what Jefferson meant by these terms. I think he used these general terms because he wanted to appeal to as many people as possible with this document. So would you say with that, then in in your mind, is Jefferson actually being pluralistic in his use of the phrase? He's trying to cast a wide net, so to speak. I can't, I mean, Jefferson never talked about, this is the thing, Jefferson never really, really talked about why he was so vague with these terms in the Declaration of Independence. We can make some assumptions based upon his other writings and his other, you know, ways in which he understood Christianity. I mean, Jefferson was not a Christian, in my view. Uh, he did not believe in the resurrection. He did not believe in in, a, in an act of God. Maybe the God would come in in different crisis moments to help people. He did not believe in the Trinity. He did not believe in the inspiration of Scripture. So, you know, it's. It, I think you need to understand that way. I think the committee who wrote the Declaration of Independence included Roger Sherman, who was a devout Christian, probably one of the most evangelical of the founders, but also Ben Franklin, who was a skeptic, John Adams, who was a Unitarian, but still had strong beliefs about religion being good for the Republic. So it's really a mix. So, so to say he was deliberately trying to be pluralistic by using these vague terms, I think you can make a good argument for that, but we honestly don't know. So when, when, the, when the Declaration of Independence is invoked in political debate, it's invoked with a sense of certainty about what Jefferson meant when anyone who studies the Declaration of Independence would never speak with such certainty about what he was trying to do there. You know, the, for instance, the idea that we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, anyone would have, would have believed that individual rights come from our creator. And then there's often a jump made to the Bill of Rights, 
11 years later. And then you have to get into this awkward position where you're kind of defending that, like, you know, the Second Amendment, for example, the right to bear arms is endowed by our creator, right? I mean, that's a hard biblical case to make, you know? So, so you get into these really awkward and, and really ahistorical interpretations of, of Jefferson's ideas about rights coming from our creator. Certainly Jefferson believed that, but could we make a biblical case for the fact that all 10 of the bill of rights or even all of the amendments somehow are scripturally rooted in biblical, like the right to privacy. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, I'll leave that to the theologians, but yeah. Even the very fact that they are amendments speaks to the nature of the errancy, you know, that it's not an inerrant document. Yeah. Handed down from on it just makes them all. And when these, when these things are applied in contemporary political debate, it just makes it just makes a very very kind of almost embarrassing type approach to to kind of what we just don't know or what we we superimpose our own political agenda on the founders you know and and that's to me as a historian is the worst thing you can possibly do so speaking of the founders they were familiar were they not with christian nation states that had official state religion I'm thinking in terms of perhaps the United Kingdom or other European countries. So they did have a sense of Christian nationalism in the, in the proper sense of the term. Is that correct? Sure. I mean, I would say, I would say, you know, rather than calling it Christian nationalism, I would say they were very familiar with uh, established state churches, right? I mean, England, France, they couldn't stand France because they were Catholic, right? And tyrannical, you know, the Catholics wouldn't give them the freedom to worship. So they, you know, they had issues with Catholicism, but clearly it was a state church, right? There were state churches all throughout the old Holy Roman Empire, which became Germany, right? There were Lutheran state provinces. There were Catholic provinces. You know, you had, you had uh, Calvin's Geneva, which was a state reformed church, right? They were clear that, you know, they wanted to create a society that would not uh, have such a, such a, uh, uh, a state church. They did not want to connect the state with religious practice in any way, shape or form. And this is often born out of their own experience. So, you know, some of the strongest advocates for what today we would call the separation of church and state. And I think the it's fair to say that is not in the constitution, that idea. Right. But, but, um, you know, we're, we're, we're evangelicals, Baptists and Methodists in Virginia who had suffered an immense amount of persecution under the Anglican church, which was the established church of Virginia or the Baptists or Quakers of New England, Massachusetts Bay Colony and Connecticut, you know, who suffered persecution. I mean, a state church essentially means that you pay taxes to the state church to pay for the minister's upkeep of buildings and so forth for the state church, even if you do not belong to the state church. So if you're a Baptist in uh, 18th century Virginia, you have to pay a religious tax to pay for the salaries of the Anglican ministers. 
And would the would the leadership of let's say Virginia would there be a religious test that you would have to be Baptist in order to be in to hold government power? Well, in Virginia you could. Well, it was Anglican. Anglican was the was the state church. So so you could run for office as a Presbyterian or a Baptist. You know, you would have to get elected though. So it was possible, yeah, in these places. Same thing in New England, um, but it was very rare, you know, for that to happen. So the, in the colonial era, then, if I'm understanding you, that there were uh, quote unquote state churches official that, that the the colony recognized an official oh, version of Christianity. Now, now it depends on the colony. Okay. Um, you know, you have places like Rhode Island and Pennsylvania, New York to some extent who uh new jersey which had religious freedom um you know in other words you did not there was no state church now when you get into after the revolution and you see these colonies now become states they begin to establish their own constitutions there there's almost universal with the exception of virginia every single state has a a either a test oath you have to uphold some kind of a doctrine or the belief in the inspiration of the Bible or a belief in God, or they have established churches, you know, because the constitution of the United States does not require them to, you know, abide by the constitution. That all changes in the 1860s and then into the 20th century when the 14th amendment gets applied. And would you remind us what the 14th Amendment is about? Sure. I mean, the 14th Amendment is a lot of things. The 14th Amendment comes out of the Reconstruction era fo- following civil wo- civil, the Civil War. It gives the free men and free women, the formerly enslaved, civil rights. Now, it also says that states must now abide by the United States Constitution. At this point, the United States Constitution has now or has now added the Thirteenth Amendment, which means that a state can now no longer say, "I have states' rights, right, to continue to uphold slavery," because now all the states must conform to the federal government. This is one of the results of the Union victory uh, in the Civil War. Now, it's it's there are a few efforts in the late 19th century, but most significantly in 1947, the Supreme Court applies the 14th Amendment to religion, to test oaths, to religious establishments. So once that application takes place, a state can no longer declare, you know, you have to believe in the Trinity in order to hold office, or, you know, your tax money will go to pay for a state religion, you know, of some type, you know, this was the famous Everson versus board case in which justice Hugo black talked about a wall of separation between church and state. So once the 14th amendment is applied to religion, states can no longer claim that they privilege one, one Christ. They have to abide by article six of the United States constitution, which says there is no test oath or the first amendment. There is no establishment. Right. So over the course of time, the states started, began to conform to this, uh, what we would call the separation of church and state. And so state governments started mimicking or, or mirroring the federal government. 
Yeah, and they were required to do so after 1868, but this had be this process had begun as early as 1776, right? You know, I mean, you know, New England, new in terms of religious establishments, Massachusetts is the last state that has a state so-called church, an official church, and that's 1832. It, Connecticut, I think it's 18, 1818 or 1819. Those are the last two. But the reason I bring this up, the reason I bring this up is you will see among people like, if we can name names here, David Barton and others, who will argue that the United States was founded as a Christian nation because these states had these tests. So, so in my state, Pennsylvania, you had to uphold a belief in God. You had to obey the Christian Sabbath. You needed to, um, you needed to uh, uphold the divine inspiration of the Old and New Testaments to run for office after the revolution, right? After 1868, uh, the 14th Amendment, and then when it gets applied to religion, you, could not, you can't do that anymore. Now, Pennsylvania, saw, Pennsylvania in, by 1790 had changed that. Right? <laughs> but, but, you know, you can't argue now that we are a Christian nation based upon that history because of change over time. If you want to look at the 18th century as kind of frozen in time, a kind of original, you know, we need to get back to that and ignore everything that happened between 1776 and 2022, then I guess you could say, you know, we want to get back to the founding when you could say, you know, a state could say you have to be a Christian to run for office. It's complicated, I know, but yeah. Well, no, it's quite, it's very helpful, right? Because we're, for many of us, uh, our, our, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but our last engagement with a history book was high school Western Civ and, or, or American history in, you know, our sophomore year. And so we're, we're seeing, we're engaging history or historical claims in memes and 30-second sound bites or movies. You know, I, most of what I learned about the revolution, Mel Gibson taught me in The Patriot. You know, so for many of us, we're, we're hearing these claims made by people like Barton and others, and it's coming in such rapid fire. And there seems to be this overwhelming, you know, there's, I, I've listened to many of Barton's talks, speeches, and presentations, and uh, he throws a thousand citations at me. And so it's difficult even to sift through it all. Uh, as a historian, what's your take on Barton, his methods, and, and, and what's your evaluation of that? David Barton is, to me, a, a political activist who uses the past to advance his political agenda. I don't think he's the only kind of person that does that. I don't even think he's the only, and I think there's, there's people who are liberals are on the left who do this too. You know, the, the, there was a survey taken about 10 years ago by professional historians and they asked, you know, what is the most irresponsible book um, out there that sort of, you know, presents bad history and at that point barton was putting out a book on thomas jefferson called uh the jefferson lies which was just very very bad my friend thomas kidd debunked it in a, a series of stinging pieces at world magazine at the time um 
but the other, so Barton was listed by these professional historians, but so was Howard Zinn, uh, the author of a book called A People's History of the United States, which essentially was in many ways uh, a mirror image of Barton, except he was, you know, he was manipulating history to promote a kind of progressive agenda. So it's interesting that those two came on that. I think Barton was one and Zinn was two. You know, David Barton studies history for a political agenda. That's what he's interested in. He's not interested in understanding the past in all its fullness and all its complexity in, in its nuanced, uh, you know, it's, it's in a nuanced way. Uh, he's very interested in cherry picking what he needs from the past. And he's brilliant at what he does. You know, what you described, I've seen him do dozens and dozens of times, not live, but, you know, on, on video where he is able in rapid fire secession to, to whip off quotes and so forth. Some of those quotes are taken out of context. Some of those quotes are, are, are made up. Like they're not true. He's been telling the story about George Washington praying at Valley Forge for years now, which has been debunked. I debunked it in in my 2011 book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? But the real problem with Barton to me is, you know, and I was telling you this before we sort of started recording, you know, much of the history that David Barton lays out is correct, right? He, you know, People tend to focus, fact checkers and so forth, tend to focus on the, say, 25% of the stuff that is incorrect. Most of what he says is correct, but my issue with him is the way he uses the past and cherry picks from the past to promote his political agendas without looking. I mean, you could go into the past and find justification for just about anything, right, if that's your purpose, so I think what Barton does is, you know, he ignores anything that doesn't serve his political ends. And to me, Barton is uh, the fount. He is the source in which much of today's Christian nationalist movement, whether it be people like Charlie Kirk or Eric Metaxas or even members of Congress that he's influenced, he is the source of this kind of approach to American history, which um, most, almost all historians I know find irresponsible. I know people at some of the most, I know people at Liberty University in their history department, at Bob Jones University, who would agree with me on this point uh, about David Barton, but he's very effective and he's very well financed. Thus, he has the capabilities of being able to, you know, have a team, him and his son and others travel and and advance this kind of uh, propaganda. So thinking about this, again, the, the, the propaganda that's just constantly being shared, especially by those who self-identify as Christian nationalists, they're sharing it on social media, on these various groups, uh, threads, uh, text chains. I've been a part of many of those as well. Uh, how would you encourage those of us that are trying to minister well to that group of people? How, wh- how would you maybe coach us in, you know, when, when a loved one uh, shares something that David Barton has said that just doesn't seem right, but, but we're not historians, would you coach us in maybe an approach that we could take in how we would engage that person that we love? Well, the first thing is this is this I have learned and I have learned this often the hard way. These are deeply held religious beliefs. David Barton is 
incredibly effective in teaching rank and file evangelicals who have last time they looked at a textbook was in high school, you know, that, that his view of American history and his approach is correct. Thus, somebody coming at this from the perspective of an alternative view is immediately going to be suspect. I've given lectures on the topic, was America founded as a Christian nation? And I've had literally people on at least two or three occasions come up to me before the lecture and say to me, the answer is yes. It was founded as a Christian nation, and nothing you can say tonight is going to convince the other one. You know, so how do you how do you deal with that? So I think I think that's the first point. I mean, when this is raised, it's inevitably going to get everybody's uh, hair up on the back of their neck or what whatever you want to do it. I think the best way is to try to provide people. First of all, I think the best people who are able to do this are people like you and other pastors who have gained, uh, who have gained trust with, um, with the communities in which you serve. I find that people in my church are much more open to me talking about critiquing David Barton because they know me. I speak their language. They they see me in other areas of my Christian life. They they you know they know I'm I I care about them. You know, I have much more success with them than when I give kind of just show up at a meeting hall and give a lecture, right? On this. So I think building those relationships almost there's a certain kind of missionary dimension to it, right? Where you, where you want to embed yourself. The, the sad part about many evangelical historians today is they get so frustrated that they, they pull out of evangelical churches or they decide, well, I'm just going to go with the Anglicans or the Episcopalians or become Catholic <laughs> or whatever, which is great. I'm not criticized. Everyone has their own spiritual journeys. But that leaves a void of kind of thoughtful people to serve as kind of intellectual missionaries, if you will, within congregations. And I know this might, that might rub people the wrong way. You know, who are you to be, tell me like you're going to be a missionary to me, but there's just a lot of bad history out there. So I think, I think one of the things I like about your website is you have resources there. I was a little disappointed not to see my book list. No, just kidding. But, but there are resources. It's coming. It's coming. There, yeah, there are resources. I'm just kidding. There are resources there that you can give, you know, people who are willing to at least have their minds open can look at and can read. And I find, I find that when people realize, and, and, you know, I think some of the things I've read on your website, there are a lot of people who believe this who are not sort of, culture warriors. They're not looking to start a fight. They're not digging their heels in or, you know, but this is the only thing they know. This is the only thing they've gotten from the, you know, if they can see that there are Christians who share their faith, you know, I like to say, you know, they'll, who, will, who they'll see in heaven or the new heavens and new earth, you know, whatever you want to call it, that might have a different view of this. And are not trying to kind of, you know, promote some kind of left-wing agenda by, by doing that. I think that helps. So thinking about some of the claims that folks like Barton or uh, others who are self-identifying as Christian nationalist organizations in America, we're hearing words like dominionism or like seven mountain dominionism, or 
This is often coupled with some sort of call to take government power, that it's our Christian mandate to take a government power to protect and propagate our way of life. Is that something that the that just in the history of America that has been, is that an undercurrent? Is that uh, a thread line that we see? Uh, I know that in your, in your book, um, Was American Founded as a Christian Nation, you categorize, you kind of have these movements of Christian nationalism within the, within the American experience or within American history. So are, are those things that have always been there and they kind of pop up and go back down again? To put it another way, are we in a unique season where this has never happened before? Or is this something that comes up every now and again? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd answer that this way. I mean, the idea, the argument over was America founded as a Christian nation or is America a Christian nation is really an argument that the founders were not having. It's an argument that really emerges for the first time in American culture in the late 1970s and 1980s. If you asked anyone living in the 19th century or say before World War II, you know, are we living in a Christian nation? They would say, of course. Um, I was on a panel with uh, a a friend of mine who uh, is the rabbi at the Toro Synagogue, which is one of the oldest synagogues in the country in in, uh, Newport, Rhode Island. And this came up and he said, of course, we're, of course, America's a Christian nation, right? We've always been one. Just ask a Jew, you know. I mean, it, it was obvious, you know, it was clear that. So, so the idea this was never an issue for debate. Um, it really, you know, you like to blame everything on the '60s, or you know, but but it was really a combination of things. I think you see you see new immigrants coming into the country in the '60s after the 1965 Immigration Act, which makes this a much more diverse and pluralistic place. You see the introduction of non-Western religions in the country, Islam especially. You see Roe v. Wade. You see you know, uh, the breakup of segregated academies in the South, all of these things lead to a certain degree of anxiety among conservative Christians, evangelicals, that they're losing their culture. They're, they're, they're losing, they've for so long been the guardians of American cultural life that now the assumptions that they have had about certain things like marriage or about, you know, reproductive rights or, um, you know, Christianity and, 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 Christmas or, you know, manger scenes or prayers at school um, or, or Bible reading in school are now being threatened. It's at this point that I think you, you see something new emerging with the rise of the Christian right, Jerry Falwell and others really make an emphasis on sort of reclaiming, renewing, restoring. There's nothing to reclaim, renew and restore in like 1910 or 1870 or 1830. This whole thing with dominionism, though, I think is another unique step. If you look at the old Christian right, and I'm talking about the Falwells and Pat Robertsons, you know, from the 80s and the 90s, you know, they are fighting for Christian values within the culture. There still is a sense of a commitment to kind of a civic pluralism among them. 
right? We we want our values to be upheld. You know, we do think abortion is murder, so we want that overturned, right? We want to make a more just society, um, which which is open to Christian ideas. I think what you saw with, you know, in the last 10 years, 5, 10 years or so, with this dominionism, this idea of dominionism has been around for a while, you know, reconstructionism, it was called, right? You know, it goes back to a man named Rusas Rushduni who wrote about this. Francis Schaeffer, a uh, figure some of your listeners may be familiar with, mm-hmm. was, was very taken by this idea. But I think what happened is, I don't want to put everything on Donald Trump, but Donald Trump created a, a, a scenario in which many of these dominionists were given power. They were given access to power. They became much more mainstream. And these dominionists now are not just concerned about the respect of Christian culture within a pluralistic society, um, but they are much more aggressive in the sort of we need to take over these seven mountains and so forth. They have been much more mainstreamed, I think, as a result of the last five or 10 years. And I think that is something new. So I think the rise of the Christian right in the 80s, 90s was something new. And now this is something new, even more uh, kind of extreme, if you want to call it that. And John, I very much appreciate your book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? But you've also recently, just in the last few years, written a book called Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. How do you see Christian nationalism uh, intersecting with the MAGA movement, the acceptance and elevation of Donald Trump? Yeah. um, You know, I I was telling you before we started recording, this idea of Christian nationalism was not on my kind of radar screen when I wrote Was America Founded as a Christian Nation in 2000? It was published in 2011, you know, so I was writing it in 2009, 2010, um, 2009, 2010, 2009-10. And the sociologists, people like Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry and others, Paul Miller, um, you know, these non-historians who write about Christian nationalism kind of confirmed a lot of what I was kind of thinking about historically back then, namely that if you believe that America was founded as a Christian nation and somehow we've lost our way and we need to reclaim, renew, restore some golden age, which I would argue probably has never existed Mm -hmm. uh, in the first place. And if it did exist in some form, it's not coming back. Right. So it's this it's this kind of regressive movement. We want to reclaim something that may not have existed in the first place. But if you do believe it exists, this then motivates this whole idea of wanting to make America great again. So I think for many evangelicals uh, who, who were attracted to Trump, this idea of make America great again was deeply tied to this kind of Christian America view of history that we discussed earlier, Barton and so forth, right? You know, I'm a historian. I When I hear make America great again, I focus on the word again, right? So, you know, a lot of people focus on great. What, what, is, what was greatness, right? I, you know, when I think about again, I have to ask, you know, you tell me when America was great. And then as a historian, I'll be happy to enter that conversation and let's talk about what life was really like for all people 
at that time when we were so great. Like, let's let's think deeply about this, right? You know, my African-American friends tell me that uh, the best time to be an African-American in the United States is probably right now, even amidst all of the Black Lives Matter and the, and the racism and, you know, the critical race theory critiques and all of this, right? No African-American wants to go back, right, to the 50s or to the, mm-hmm. you know, so... So I think this idea of history, if you can get the founding right, right, if you can, if you can, if you can at least try to understand that the founding may not necessarily be as easily kind of utilized in the present as some would like it to be, then that kind of rips the foundation out from the entire kind of dominionist, make America, Christian, make America great again uh, kind of movement. So I think, I think Trump's appeal to this nostalgic, you know, era that he was going to take us back to, um, for many evangelicals, you know, this fit very, very well with the stuff they had been fed in their churches for years from the likes of David Barton, or even earlier than that, others before him, Francis Schaefer, D. James Kennedy, uh, you know, some of these people who maybe some of your younger listeners have, have not heard of. Yeah. Well, Dr. Fia, thank you so much for uh, helping us understand just a little bit more about how this is all playing together in our current moment and how this, um, how our history as a country is to a degree being weaponized for this political agenda or this fear mongering. And uh, if we, if we, uh, if if some of our listeners wanted to find you, what's a good way for them to find your work? Yeah. I'm the executive editor of a, uh, of a um, online journal of opinion and commentary called currentpub.com current. Uh, but you can find it at currentpub.com. There you can find as well, if you click on my blog, The Way of Improvement Leads Home, which is also published at currentpub.com, you can find my books. Uh, you can find my what I've written. You know, much of much of what I do now is through that that um, outlet. We put together a nice team of people who uh, who are concerned about American democracy and uh, and that's where I'm doing most of my work these days. Or you can just contact me, jfea at messiah.edu. I'm a professor at Messiah University in Pennsylvania. Great. And we'll link that in the show notes for everybody. Dr. John Fia, thank you so much again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This was fun.